Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome everyone to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today we will be looking at the 2005 supernatural horror legal drama, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. With me are Ted. I am the one who dwells within. I am Eric. And I am the one who comes in his name. And Ken. You think you could flush me out, priest? I dare you. All right, wonderful. Well, let's dive into this movie here. Uh, Ted, give us some of the details of The Exorcism of Emily Rose. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, directed by Scott Derrickson, with a screenplay by Scott Derrickson and Paul Harris Boardman. It has a running time of 119 minutes. It has a release date of September 9th, 2005. It had a budget of $19 million. And it had a box office gross of $145.2 million. The Exorcism of Emily Rose stars Laura Linney as Aaron Berner, Jennifer Carpenter as Emily Rose, Tom Wilkinson as Father Richard Moore, Campbell Scott as Ethan Thomas, Calm Fior as Carl Gunderson, Joshua Close as Jason, Kenneth Welsh as Dr. Mueller, and Duncan Frazier as Dr. Graham Cartwright. All right. Thanks, Ted. Tell us about uh, the reviews of this movie. Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critic score of 44%, so it does get a splat. But the audience score is a 60%. As far as our critics go, we have Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. He wrote, Director and co-writer Scott Derrickson thinks he's not ripping off the 1973 Exorcist presumably because his effects are too tacky and work up a scare or convincing case for possession. Ouch. Lou Luminick of the New York Post said, The most frightening thing about The Exorcism of Emily Rose is how three Oscar-nominated actors were talked into working with Scott Derrickson, writer-director of the direct-to-video Hellraiser Inferno. Wow, double ouch. Wow. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was good. Yeah, he, that was pretty good. He, on, but on the positive side, we have two of our big heavy hitters. Richard Roper wrote, he said it's very scary stuff, and as a courtroom drama, it is very effective. And Roger Ebert wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times, the screenplay is intelligent and open to occasional refreshing wit. Wow, it's pretty simple and to the point on both those reviews. Yeah. Not too wordy as reviews usually are. So no, they were pretty straight to the point. Yeah, <laughs> except for the guy from the New York Post who he wanted to take down the the director. I mean, he tossed in Hellraiser Inferno and mm-hmm. Ken. He was not give impressed. us the plot of this one. Aaron is an ambitious lawyer seeking to become a senior partner in her law firm. She is forced to take the case of Father Richard Moore. Richard Moore is a Catholic priest charged with negligent homicide following an attempted exorcism of a 19-year-old student, Emily Rose. 
The Archdiocese wants more to plead guilty to minimize public attention, but more wants the story to be told. During the trial, the statements and the witnesses are visualized by flashbacks. Prosecutor Ethan Thomas interrogates several doctors to establish a medical cause for Emily's health issues, particularly epilepsy and schizophrenia. Emily has dropped out of her college studies after being consistently struck by delusions and muscle spasms at 3 a.m. in the morning. She returned to her parents' home and was treated with epilepsy and psychosis medication. Father Moore was consulted when her condition failed to improve, and his assessment and observations led him to the conclusion that Emily was being possessed by a demon. With the consent of Emily's parents, Moore subjects Emily to an exorcism that ultimately fails. Father Moore gives his testimony when he's called to the witness stand. Aaron begins experiencing supernatural phenomena. Father Moore warns her that she may be a target of the demons. Graham Cartwright, a medical doctor who attended the exorcism, gives Aaron a cassette tape on which the exorcism was recorded. presents the recording as evidence. Cartwright's testimony is prevented when he is suddenly struck and killed by a car. Aaron's bosses threaten her with termination if she allows Moore to testify again. Aaron visits Moore in a jail cell where he convinces her to allow him to tell the rest of Emily's story despite her boss's threat. The next day, Father Moore takes the witness stand again and reads a letter that Emily wrote before she died. On the morning after the exorcism, Emily was visited by the Virgin Mary in a field near the, her house and was permitted the choice of ascending to heaven. But Emily chose to endure her suffering and later receive stigmata. The jury comes back with a verdict of guilty, but recommends a sentence of time served, which the judge accepts. Father Moore is free to go. Aaron is offered a partnership in her firm, but she declines. Later, Father Moore and Aaron pay a visit to Emily's grave, and Moore states that the time will come wherein Emily will be declared a saint. The end. So much to dissect in that, and we're going to get to it here. So let's talk about the first time we saw this movie. Ken, why don't you kick us off? This week. I saw it this week for the first time. We got something in common. How about that? Ditto, man. First time for me. Thing's been around, what, for 17 years? Never saw it. I saw this movie when it was in the movie theater. This was a period of time where my wife and I were seeing a lot of movies first run, and this would have been definitely one that we saw. I, I actually remember seeing it in a movie theater. It was a good movie experience. Any horror movie that you see with a crowd tends to be better. You play off the motion of the crowd. I'm like never being like super scared, but I remember being freaked out toward the end of the movie that Ken was talking about where they perform the exorcism and she um, declares who's possessing her. I thought that was kind of weird. You know, it's funny you say that about uh, kind of building off the crowd in a theater. This is not my review of the movie, but I'm bringing up a movie that I saw first run in the movie, which I'm sure we've all seen, uh, The Ring. 
Mm-hmm. We saw so that I saw that first theater. run in the theater, and it scared the living life out of me. I mean, it just freaked me out. Then the thing comes on video. I watch it in my house, and I almost find it comical. It's amazing how being surrounded by people and having mm-hmm. that jumping nature and that fear, just everyone feeding off each other, really enhances a movie-going experience. Paranormal activity. It was a full theater. I got one of the last seats because I had seen it by myself. Having that atmosphere in that movie theater, it made it even creepier. I will say, seeing this for the first time by myself at night, there was some intensity to it. You watch it at 3 a.m.? Not at 3 a.m., but I will say the score of this movie does set up things well. However, the second time I watched it, it completely lost the intensity. It just wasn't there. That could be just because the buildup was good, but the results failed. Well, man, are you you're tipping your cap here early, it sounds like. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, there's, maybe there's, not. There's multiple parts of this movie because we have a trial and we have an exorcism. So there's two parts of this movie. That's a good segue. So let's kick off there. You know, half this movie really is a trial. You got your flashbacks. You got your exorcism scenes. But then you have the trial, which I think is the real meat and bones of this movie when you really get down to it. You've got two sides of this movie. You've got the prosecution and you got the defense on it. Both uh, equally important. I would say equally convincing, in my opinion. What do you think, Ted? This really works well for me here. This is not the scary part of the movie, of course. For me, it's interesting. It's interesting to see somebody have to put faith on trial, essentially, because that's what they're doing. Obviously, Father Moore believes that she was possessed by the devil or by six demons. How far does belief go before it becomes criminal? I really like the interplay here. I think this is the part of the the movie that almost works the best. Plus, you have two really good actors playing the two lawyers. Campbell Scott, who we talked about before in Singles. Um, and he was very good in that movie. Yeah, he does really good in this part. You believe him. And, of course, Laura Linney. What more can you say about Laura Linney at this point? I mean... Her turn in the Netflix drama Ozark, if you haven't watched Ozark, is one of the best TV shows ever produced. It's amazing. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I'm, oh, it, dude, it's I okay. would. It's, it's not phenomenal, but Laura oh, Linney is credible in it. I'll give you that. You go back to when she, one of her first roles was in Primal Fear. Agreed. Ken, what are your thoughts on this? I'm going to totally disagree with Ted here on this. I think the performances here are stale. I think the reviewer at the beginning of it might have it right. I mean, you have a waste of some wonderful actors here. And I love Laura Linney in general. I actually think that Campbell Scott, who actually we discussed offline, is the son of George C. Scott. And the director here is trying to go for an anatomy of murder, which is an older film that his father was in, which was much better than what we're seeing here. There's nothing smart in these defenses or in the prosecution. Neither one of them are bringing anything worth substance. Oh, I object. Why? Because it's silly. There's just nothing here. There's no substance to me in this courtroom. And then you're not bringing anybody important to the stand. You're not bringing the mother. I, I want some emotion here. Nobody has any emotion when it comes to this trial. Even Father Moore comes off as just being 
eh, I want to get the story out, but I don't feel any emotion. These are all one-dimensional characters. And when they get to the courtroom, especially, that dimension even gets smaller. It's a little frustrating for me. The one thing that was frustrating for me, now to bring it up, I, I would agree. The characters are a little bit cardboardish. They are a little bit one-dimensional. It's very hard for me to find a role that Laura Linney is not good in. But one scene that does come to mind here, and we'll discuss this one briefly, is when Demon enters her apartment and she kind of freaks out and she gets the glass of water and she drops the water and the door opens and then what does she do she just goes back to bed and goes to sleep yeah what's up with that it looks like she even drops the water on purpose what the hell i'm just gonna go to bed you know i'm gonna go lock the door and then i yeah i'm just gonna go you know just go back to bed i'm sure the demon's not in here or whatever a little weird i I saw that i'm like okay now what ken i disagree with you i think when she brings out the anthropologist from northwestern and she puts her on the stand to try to explain the science and the history of what possession can be i think that's very interesting i think it's a very interesting way to defend somebody who is on trial i guess for their life in a certain sense i do agree with you though i don't necessarily like that father moore is put on the stand just to tell a story because in real life you wouldn't do that in an actual trial so therefore you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief I don't know. I I like the interplay between the characters. I think it works really well. I will agree with you, Ted, on the explanation that we get from Dr. I don't even know how to say her name. It's a hard name to say, but when she brings that doctor on the stand to explain kind of her point of possession and stuff and how the medication connects, that stuff is interesting. I'll, I'll give you credit, but everything else, it just doesn't make sense to me. Why don't you put the mother on the stand? You start off with the defense from Campbell Scott's character showing a picture of Emily Rose after she's dead. Right. And right there, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be good. They're going to like go for the heartstrings and things of that nature. And we never see it again. You know, you can't bring the mom to the stand or any of the sisters. You bring the dad up and he basically doesn't even ask answer the question that they ask him. The line of questioning, for the most part, does not make sense to me in this courtroom drama. Again, I go back to the fact that we have some really great actors here. And I feel like they're being underused. I just think the dialogue in general is not that great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's when you get into the courtroom, it's painfully obvious this is not an Aaron Sorkin written movie. Ultimately, that's not why we're here. <laughs> we're We've here got for Aaron the... Sorkin actors. You got people that could be in an Aaron Sorkin film. That's my, Agreed. my problem here. Agreed. This this obviously is not a few good men. You took the words right out <laughs> of my But the director mind. wants that to be the case. If you listen to the director in the commentary, yeah. he thinks of a few good men. He thinks about anatomy of a murder. He thinks that this is up there with the courtroom dramas of the past. That He you is know, seriously are... wrong. <laughs> By the way, I love the look of the courtroom. It's different, but we don't see much from the jurors as far as reaction, except for the beginning when they show the picture. And that's because they don't give the jurors anything to react to. And then you're going back and forth between this and what actually happened to Emily Rose. feels disjointed a little bit. The fact that we're here, I would have liked to have seen a backstory on Emily Rose for me to give a damn. I have to watch the documentary of, uh, about the real person that this is based on to give a shit. Well, the one thing about this movie that really kind of upset me is it had a lot of potential, 
but it was very cliche when it came to your courtroom scenes and your flashbacks going back and forth, back and forth. Not a lot of additional room was put in here where you could make this more of a unique movie to the director. I've almost like I've seen this movie before, practically the way it was directed and played out. The director aspires this movie to be more than what is there. And that's unfortunate. And I guess in a big way, you could blame the director. Didn't take the material to a higher spot. It's like he went by the book. It's like he went by the book. Cliche. By the book. Absolutely. The topic is very interesting. Yeah. I'm not going into this movie thinking I'm watching A Few Good Men or any other Aaron Sorkin crime drama. It's trying to do two things at once. And and it does neither neither one well. Exactly. That's the problem. You need to focus on one and do it really well. And then that will at least make the other one tolerable. The fact that you're not doing either one very well here forces me to go, what the heck? Here's the thing. You got the opportunity to go straight to the writer. I guess the the writer had the rights to it because enough time had gone by. But it, it seems like they took away the good stuff that was in the original story here. And they replaced it with things that really didn't matter. And we'll talk more about it when we get to the exorcism, because that's where they kind of like almost pull apart things that were, I thought, important. But this courtroom scene, even the judge comes off as being kind of dull. Everybody here is just dull. I mean, I want some emotion. Get something going here. He purposely didn't have the people who played the jury know the script so they can get a reaction out of the jury when it was all said and done. But the thing is, you never gave anything the jury to react to. I wanted him to be guilty just because I was bored of it. Ken wanted him to get the chair. Obviously, the movie is based on the courtroom and based on flashbacks. The whole movie goes back and forth between them. And the flashbacks consist of the supernatural activities that are hitting the priest and the lawyer, played by Laura Linney. Obviously, she's warned about it, but doesn't really believe about it. Ken, what do you think about this? It's not done well. It would have worked really well if you went to a flashback and kind of stayed there for a little bit. I want to know more about Emily Rose. We hear on the stand what she likes and things of that nature, but we don't see it from her. We know she's going to college and she's excited about going to college, but that's about it. I mean, the mother kind of gives us kind of blank look. Are they uh, happy for her? Are they going to try to keep her home? I don't know any of that, but I would have liked to seen a little bit of a buildup of her being the sweet girl that everybody talks about. And why does she go to the neighbor when something bad happens instead of to her mom? Is there a reason for that? They don't give good enough reasons for why they do certain things. And the flashbacks would have worked just fine if they would have just let me care about the characters at the beginning of the flashbacks. Put some investment at the beginning. This is almost a two-hour movie. And it drags because they're they're not focused on what I think is important. What The Exorcist did really well, it showed us the relationship of the mom and daughter and how happy they were and how much she cared for her daughter. Then we slowly got to see the changes. Here, it's come like zero to 60. We're happy about going to college and then we're at college and then something bad happens. There's no in-between. I'm just not invested. Most of the time, Ken, I'm usually uh, down your throat about backstories. You're always wanting backstories on characters. In this case, I agree with you 100%. 
This is a movie where we need to know the backstory of her and her family. We need to know more about, I'd say, their religious convictions, which I think play a very strong part in this movie, and about her going to university. You're right. Is the father happy or not? We don't know. These are things that really play an important thing about her personality, her um, psychology, the way she thinks, and possibly the way, for lack of a better phrase, demon gets inside her, or is it psychology-based? These are things that we really need to know, and I wish we would have had that opportunity. The movie being only two hours long, most of these horror movies are over two hours, 210, 220. There's a lot of uh, dead air in this one that we could have cut out and made this a much better, tighter movie. When the demon comes in the first time and we're in the dorm, first of all, she has a room by herself, so I guess it's a really no, great, really her, awesome college. Her um, her roommate is gone. So yeah, they mentioned that. that. Yeah, I, right. I missed that. But I would have known if I would have got to meet the roommate. We don't get to see her meet her boyfriend. Anyway, we get we were there. Maybe the if you would have stayed that. awake during the movie, you would have caught that. Maybe. But here's the thing. It looks like she's getting raped. I mean, she's getting choked. She's getting her hands down. Her shirt's going up. It looks like a rape scene. But guess what? We don't hear any of that. We don't know if if that's what happened to her or not. They gloss over all the things that happened to her. And we only see it in the flashback. But even then, the flashback is so vague. It's almost like we have to make up our own story for ourselves to understand what happened. We can go many different directions on this. Don't believe it's going to be considered a rape scene for two reasons. Number one, we are going to look at this as a demonic possession where the demon is trying to get control and scare her and initially make her go crazy. Or we can say this is schizophrenia and it's uh, psychotic and this is all in her head, which if it's in her head, there's obviously no rape. I think... The way they did that was good. It kind of builds it up a little bit. I agree with you. They're trying to walk a fine line here, especially with this particular scene. This is also the problem with a PG-13 movie. There are strict limits. Dude, that's between... right. I forgot this. Is, it was originally yeah. R, but they got to talk down to a 13. I forgot about that. Yeah. You have to stay within those limits. I understand exactly with what Ken is saying, because it does kind of feel a little Nightmare on Elm Street-ish, with the bed kind of trying to eat her a little bit. That was the impression that I got originally, and it's something that's kind of stuck with me. So I think that that scene works. There has to be a point where they have to put on film something that's supposed to happen internally, because you can't just put on film a demon walking into somebody's body. So they have to get as creative as possible of how to get the demon in, and I can understand where there would be some confusion. I think the flashbacks here, though, they work on, there's two different sets of them. There's the current day with Father Moore and the lawyer. Eric, you had brought up earlier about her not buying in, and she drops the glass, and that whole thing is... That's it's silly because that should be one of the scariest parts of the movie is the stuff that's happening currently. And Tom Wilkinson does a really great job of selling that there are demons at work outside. And the moment he sells it, the next scene, she no sells it <laughs> to use wrestling terms. And he, she just no sells really, it. really good in that. He doesn't overdo it. It's not no. like, you know, full on board, just in your face. It's very subtle. You're always like, ooh, you know, just thinking about it like, yeah. But the, one of the things that we're saying here as far as 
that scene with her and the door and the glass. This demon is able to kill this other doctor by throwing him into a car. But this demon can't seem to do much of anything else. It's well, he didn't of... throw him into the car. Oh, the car speculation. Spe- I object. Speculation. Well, if you if you watch it though, it seems like a gust of wind comes and just pushes him into the car window. The car doesn't hit him straight him. on. He kind of falls back into it after he sees something coming after him. It's just so inconsistent. So the demon's able to kind of scare you to the point where you either back into the car or you. It looks like he flew into the car to me when I watched it. But he's not able to take out the defense attorney, not able to take out the priest. can do everything he wants to everybody else, but certain people I guess he just can't touch. It's just inconsistent. I will say, as far as Father Moore goes, the best scenes I like him in is when he's in this prison cell. When he's explaining things to her. When you get him on stand, I don't particularly care for him. I don't particularly care for him in the exorcism as well. I think there's just something really missing here. And maybe it's because we're also coming off of The Exorcist, which is a far superior movie when it comes to everything. Just the expectations were a little bit higher for me here, especially with the actors that you have. I just feel like if you're going to do something to one person, I think I want to feel that threat to everybody else. And I felt like when they missed the boat in her apartment and nothing really ever happens to her, she's just a little scared because her door is open. Outside of that, really, her clock stops at 3 o'clock. She finds the uh, the amulet with her initials. Yeah, I mean, see, that's, that's part. That's so random. I know, I know. This is part of the movie that should have been scarier. They have her no-sell, this demon. I mean, you never buy that she's in any sort of danger or that something's happening to her, even. Then don't and sell the, it. Don't put it in the Father right. Moore's mouth that demons are going to come to get you right. and come and get me and not have it paid off. You're exactly right. And I don't think it's Laura Linney's acting. No. I think it's the way it's written. They're trying to play too much that she's an agnostic, that she may not believe in this. In doing so, you're hurting another part of the movie. Like you said, and when Father Moore's in the cell, I think that's actually one of the scariest things. When the demon comes to get him and he's in his cell, because he's now captured and he can't run but it's his faith that defeats and pushes the demon away i think that's one of the more powerful scenes in the movie because i believe tom wilkinson and i'm not a big fan of him on the stand but when he's outside of the stand i believe his character that part of these flashbacks and they're not flashbacks it's a current thing but if we're going to tackle the flashbacks of the story that leads up to the exorcism This is another failure of the writing. And normally, like Eric had said, I'm kind of the person that hammers Ken about needing a backstory on every character. But here's the thing. Our major character that the movie's named after, we know very little about this character. Let's take a a short thing of what we know about her. We know that she comes from a devout Catholic household, even though they make them out to be a bunch of country bumpkins. We know that she was going to be a teacher. We know she had a boyfriend, and we know she gets possessed, and she doesn't eat. Everything that we know about her is coming from testimony or things that are mentioned in passing. There's no emotional connection to this character. It's very and weak. That's And that's unfortunate. The movie's trying to hammer home that Father Moore believes this woman should be a saint. And we never get 
as to the reason why. And See, that's the thing. That's why you need the backstory. I would have liked to have seen maybe her attending church at the beginning of the film, and they have a relationship, and he really of them cares making for them, her. Does like Emily a have of... a history of seizures? Does she have a history of any type of psychotic behavior? It's like college set her off, is what it, it sounds like in the well, movie. This is another thing that it kind of fails at as far as details go. The one doctor who testifies for the prosecution, who came up with this idea of the psychotic epilepsy or whatever he calls it, he should have been the one to identify the fact that after your adolescence, around 19 or 20 is really when, if somebody is schizophrenic, that's when this is going to start to be identified. It does happen in some people earlier in severe cases. But here again, like you said, Eric, this should have been something that should have been put to the viewer to show a progression. There's a way they could have made it where it's still scary, but it leaves that grain of doubt that somebody's crazy or not. Like she sees something and dismisses it. She doesn't even have a chance to dismiss anything because it all happens so quickly, so fast. Like maybe she's walking along and she sees a face that kind of turns a little scary and she's like, is it something that I really see or was that just all in my mind? We don't get really any of that. We're kind of like forced into it right away at the dorm. We're not introduced to her boyfriend basically until... He's smoking a cigarette watching her run into um, the church. church. And every movie I've seen now, I'm not saying you can't be demon-possessed in a church, but I think that's probably the least likelihood of a place that you go full-blown possessed. That's one of those cases, when used properly, could be a thing that should put a grain of doubt into somebody's mind. Well, it's like the hospital scene where she sees the clouds and she sees that monster face in the clouds. Why not do that earlier to kind of set something up a little bit? It's something that she could have just thought she was having a bad dream or, you know, she rubs her eyes and looks again and it's not there. Just something to kind of help us progress a little bit there. But everything is kind of just forced together. The boyfriend's not even needed. We don't even need this boyfriend Mm -hmm. character at all. Anybody could have noticed her running in the rain scared could have been somebody at church could have been a priest at the church for crying out loud have him at least us seeing that she's fallen in love with the guy the first time we see him with her she's in the matrix like shooting bullets at her and she's kind of contorting herself which i heard a lot of the contorting uh, was done by her very little was done cgi wise kudos to her for being able to do that and it's a shame because i think some of the things that she does in this movie is really good i wish they would have given her more to do with Emily Rose and not Emily Rose, the possessed girl. I really want to say that I do like Jennifer Carpenter's portrayal and her acting in this. I mean, like Ken, you said that almost all of the contortions that sh- she does, that's actually her. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And I, pretty and I damn buy. Impressive. Yeah. 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 When she's doing what she's doing on screen, even though the story's kind of convoluted, I buy her as an actress. I buy the character. I just wish there was more meat on the character's bones. And that's what's quite unfortunate. Here's the thing. When she finds out that she got a scholarship, the look of her face, the joy in her face, it, it's really real. And I and that's the right. only thing I get to invest in her character. If you gave me more of that, because she has already shown that she can do that, why not give me what I need to be invested in the movie? You didn't give me enough time. I'm going to posit a theory 
before we get on to the actual exorcism and everything like that, because we're having problems with the story and it's being very disjointed, the same problems that all three of us are talking about keep coming up again and again. I wonder if in the edited footage, I wonder if there was a good movie in here. If there was things that were cut to get it one minute under the two hour mark or things that were cut that would have made it an R movie. Potentially. Or if it's something that the director himself cut or requested to be cut by the editor. Or if he did his own editing. On the floor, I wonder if there's a good movie and a really good movie here. There wasn't many deleted scenes in the uh, bonus features no, of the DVD. But of see, the that's, that's the thing with the deleted scenes. Those are just ones that they put in there. I'm talking about stuff that they deleted out of the, the script at any given time or was shot and got cut. Well, um, it's irrelevant because we don't get to see it. I watched him talk about this movie, and he thinks he's the best things in sliced bread. I think he thinks he's Frank Capra for crying out loud. The way he's he thinks he's, yeah, I think he thinks he's, he's both. He thinks yeah, he's, he's a great not. horror director, and he's a great courtroom drama director, and he's neither in this particular movie. I think he has a sense of arrogance that I'm getting off the extras, and maybe this is not him. Maybe this is not the way he is. Maybe it's just him promoting the film and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, I haven't used this in a long time. It comes off very Kevin Smith-like. There, hey, there's, there's potential the here, heck? but it misses the mark because there's not enough follow-through. You're using Kevin Smith's name as an I'm, adjective now. I'm sorry, Kevin Smith. <laughs> you please, Munson. Will you please forgive us. Will you please from come, Kingpin, come right? and talk You've to been us? Munson. I'm so sorry for you. Can come on our podcast and yell at Ken. That would be wonderful. That that arrogance that you're talking about, Ken. That even further leads me to believe that there was probably a good movie somewhere around here. But let's be honest. You're not going to have a director that's going to come out on his commentary and go, you know what? This, this movie's movie marginal sucked. at best. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. Sorry, folks. Kevin yeah, Smith actually apologized for Mallrats, so there's that. Talking about Mallrats is an incredible movie. I know. It's got now nothing it to is. apologize for. But this director basically during these extras is saying, hey, all these other courtroom dramas of recent era suck. They're just not as good as what they used to do back in the 50s and 60s. And my movie brings that back. Yeah, maybe okay, you got could, Raymond Burr to be in your movie. There's no actor in, that would have been able to save this movie. This is bad writing, bad directing. And I want to like this movie. I do want to like this movie. There are some saving graces. Like I said before, when I first watched it, it did have that intensity. But the original story, I believe she had 67 exorcisms we get to yeah, see well, one day one day of exorcisms and that's it but after that first exorcism oh she told us not to do it anymore so we're not going to do it again you have somebody that's either being possessed by the devil and you're going to listen to her about what she wants i mean no or if she's psychotic you know schizophrenia right. are you going to listen to her if she tells you she doesn't want food or anything like that it just doesn't make any sense yeah, when we get to the exorcism, I mean, this is ultimately, this is why people are coming to the movie, because this is the scariest part of the movie. I actually think the exorcism part is actually done fairly well. I think when it comes to the scare part, it works well. Why does it work well? Because I, I think Jennifer Carpenter pulls it off. I remember being freaked out in the movie theater, and when she goes through the voices and starts talking in the, the different languages, I think that that worked. This is the part of the movie that I actually really like a lot. 
but we only get to see it for not even 10 minutes. But I think it works. And when it comes to the crescendo of her in the barn, and we find out exactly who is inhabiting Emily Rose, I think that's actually pretty scary. I I mean, it's not exorcist scary, but I think it does better than a lot of different things. It's better than the the death scene of the doctor outside of the courtroom, which tries to be the omen and falls short. I really buy Jennifer Carpenter's portrayal. I think she's she does really good. She's of this movie. I mean, let's be honest. She really is. The courtroom scenes are marginal at best. The flashback scenes, like I keep saying, are cliche. I know I've used that term about 50 times today, but it's true. But she really is the highlight of this movie. The exorcism scenes are very well done, very believable. The fact that she can uh, contort herself in those positions is pretty damn impressive. Really good in this. I believe she was in Dexter as well, wasn't she? Yes. And she's very good in Dexter from the episodes I've seen of that. I appreciate them not trying to be the exorcist. I do appreciate them trying to be a little bit more original, but there's some things that I just have a hard time with. Her jumping out the window, running to the barn, having snakes drop out of the loft onto the priest. I don't know why that's even a big thing. Oh, a snake dropped on me. How about the killer cats? You have one cat that jumps on the priest, right. takes him down, and then they have and all the that, other cats yeah. just kind of walking around. There, right. there are some silly things here. I think they focus way too long on trying to get the name. And I know the names that are spouted out are that of, I believe, of the original person that this was based off of, I believe, I think all Judas of and one. Hitler. Which one was the one that wasn't part of that? Do you know? And uh, Donald Trump. And the, <laughs> in, the, in the real life case of Annalisa Mikkel, she mentions at the very end, the last person that she says is in her is a disgraced priest who had fallen away from the faith. And apparently and started, she would and, have no knowledge of that priest. Right. And he started. Everyone else, heresy. not a problem. Nero, Hitler. Right. Yeah. But those names but she, make me feel like that this is a mental case. This is not an actual dynamic possession because of the names that she's throwing out are so well-known names except for the one priest that's the real life in the movie she talks about belial and lucifer you see her again without any explanation the viewer is supposed to know that lucifer is not necessarily the devil that lucifer can be depending on what tradition you're going from can actually be a separate demon entity other than the devil just using the generic term a demon in general possession is really all you need to go for well she says i'm lucifer the devil himself so she does make it a point to say i am the devil which we also see in the exorcist reagan says that too that i'm the devil so i don't have a problem there it's just the name's hitler and and i know that's from the original story which also makes me question the original story as well but i just feel like there's some just hokiness i do like her performances but i feel like everybody else that's at the barn especially the father doesn't seem to have any clue what to do here i don't know why there isn't two priests why there's just one priest this is more like a real life exorcism than Mm -hmm. even the exorcist and this is based off of father malachi martin in his book hostage to the devil you can have another priest with you but it's generally two witnesses a doctor and the exorcist I mean, if we're going by what Father Malachi Martin taught the world about exorcism, this is 
more of a traditional view of it than even what's in The Exorcist. The idea of, I need an old priest and a young priest type of a jokey thing. But it just seems like the, the witnesses there are more of a problem than they are a help. The witnesses, maybe one of them would have some sort of emotional connection to the person being possessed so that they have a family member there. But another person should be somebody outside of that. And then there's the a medical doctor. Usually the medical doctor plays that part as the, per, the other witness. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get here. It does what it's supposed to do. It provides a scare. I believe that it's actually, it is kind of freaky. But there's also the, the twinge of doubt there too, because like you said, when you're starting to talk about Cain and Judas and Nero and Hitler, right? I mean, so... It's like the top of the I, list. Hey, and, and, I, I need the top 10 guys to come out and possess this girl with right. me. Who's in? And I think this is where Campbell Scott's lawyer does a good job uh, when Father Moore's on the stand of identifying how she would have known how to do the different languages. Although, she goes to a school that teaches Aramaic. That's pretty impressive in itself, huh? I've only met one person, and that was one of my professors in college, who actually studied Aramaic. Especially for a school in a very rural area. Right? Yeah, that's a little bit of backstory that would have made it a little bit more interesting. That's a little far-fetched, but Ken, you had mentioned the music. You thought the music did a good job here, and it and it does. It's not anything to write home about, but I do kind of like the way it, it's shot. Camera angles, and I like the darker tint. The cinematography is very good in this. I will give it that. Especially the opening scene, because the opening scene, I think, is amazing. It makes you want the movie to be so much more. Because that opening scene, is it's dark. You know that it's daytime, but it's still dark and it's heavy. The medical examiner is going into the house and everybody's kind of shell-shocked. That's probably, if we're going outside of the exorcism, that might be the best scene in the movie. It kind of falls and, from there. It is a great... Cause, it, it's very dramatic because you don't know yeah. what's going to happen. So with this exorcism, because I mentioned the original story, they had 67 exorcisms, and here we only get to see one, but we get to see her play a piano when the priest is there, and he knows her playing the piano like she's normal for a brief moment. Maybe I needed more of those back and forward moments where she's normal and then she's going crazy, because those little things like her playing the piano, it's so one-off, I don't know what to make of that. I don't think the audience knows what to make of that unless they go ahead and do some research on the original right. story to find out what we that know was what all she was about. Playing. I don't care because I don't care about her character. I don't really have, like, again, I'm not invested because they're just not giving me enough. And that's where you have a problem with trying to do a courtroom drama slash horror film is that you are trying to do two things at once and you're not giving enough weight to one or the other. They turn out to be almost equally as bad. After the exorcism is over, we're kind of left with us going, what just happened? And why isn't anything else happening after this? So I guess nobody watches for her welfare. Nobody stays up just to kind of keep an eye and see what happens. She's just able to walk out the door and just randomly go out to the tree. And I I love the shot, by the way. Again, great look. Yeah, I was just going to say that. But what happens after that is almost kind of silly to me. If this wasn't based on a true story, I would say... Loosely based on a true story. What I said earlier is you took things from the original story 
right. and things that were good and interesting you got rid of and then you brought in things that made no point boyfriend don't care you didn't use them right so why even add them onto it but maybe if we found out they went back and forth with the exorcisms and maybe if they were very brief maybe there we see two or three minutes of them maybe we get an exorcism montage or something i don't know i know we don't no, need we're not. i'm we just kidding about that this is a montage <laughs> no. holy crap now i need something here too. though to kind of get me interested in it and if i'm only getting this one brief kind of exorcism yeah. and we're left after that exorcism with oh i went out talked to the virgin mary and she told me that i need to you know suck it up and deal with it or i can go with her now yeah suck it, it up just, and deal with it beautiful what you're talking what you're talking about could have been remedied by one brief montage one one no <laughs> just one brief thing all it has to be when you see the fog i guess she's walking in fog have a line come up that says after 60 ec- more exorcisms this is what happens or something like that How about seeing just, just the frustration just to of father more going through oh, all these just to tell that even <laughs> see this is where it's manipulative because even Father Moore on the stand says that this was a one-off. So right. you can't do what we're asking here, which is to say, you know what? There needs to be more emotional stakes. I think this scene is beautifully shot. Personally, how I would have wanted it to be is you have that establishing that there was 60 more attempts at trying to help Emily Rose. And they all failed. And this is the result. Don't have her body out there and have it be that. Let it be her spirit that's going out to wherever and have it be like an astral plane type of a thing because that's almost dreamlike the whole sequence. And here's the thing. You just had the exorcism, but the next morning you're going to be able to pen a nice little letter about what you experienced. It would have been a little bit better if we would have seen the back and forth so it could be explained better why she's able to write a letter because all we see is her nuts and we don't even see her face or anything when she's playing the piano so we don't know how normal she really looks and here's the other thing maybe a little bit of progression of her looking worse and worse great thing about the exorcist we get to see reagan slowly change right slowly change into that demon at the end would have benefited borrowing a little bit from the exorcist i know they tried their best not to be the exorcist, but you know what? Sometimes things work, and you need to borrow those type of things from other movies. And that's where I think you failed here. I think you had a great chance to make this something so much more. And if you invest an extra 15 to 20 minutes, make this a two-hour and 15-minute movie, I think it's worth the investment. It could have been a contender. All right. I know, Ken, you're not emotionally invested in the character, but just taking Emily Rose before we talk about what happened in real life... Did she have schizoaffective disorder, or was she possessed? My professional opinion, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on this podcast. So I've, I've actually did a little bit of a deep dive in this one. A few people that have analyzed this, a few doctors that have analyzed this movie, ironically enough. And oh, wow. some great points were brought I know, I know. Some great points were, were brought up on this one. It's funny that Ken brings up that backstory because you really need the backstory. Obviously, this mm-hmm. is very loosely um, based on the Annalise Michelle possession. What we know, a deeply religious family, 
We know that she studied many languages, so she was deeply dedicated to her schooling. She got a full scholarship to university, so she's obviously very intelligent. She wants to be a teacher, so she wants to help people. These are all things that are very common in a Catholic family, if you will. We don't know anything about her mental state. We don't know anything about the family. We do know that the prosecutor asked the father something about a, a prior family member came up that I think his mother was in a an institution. Mm-hmm. So there now is a history of mental illness in the family. Mental illness, Ted, you can attest to this as well. I know you've brought this up in many other podcasts, is a stigma. People do not want to be associated with mental illness, being crazy, being any type of non-normal illness. It's something that people do not want to be associated with. In many religious circles, I think that is also the case. People don't want to say, oh, my daughter is ill. My daughter is sick. My daughter has issues. So conveniently, someone, especially with a Catholic background, and I'm not bashing the Catholic Church on this podcast, Okay, I have my issues with Catholicism. That is a whole different podcast. But if we're looking at it just based on this movie and just on basic facts, and from people I know that have very strong Catholic backgrounds, generally their families tend to be really uber strict when it comes to stuff. Dating, movies, music, staying out late, people you associate with. This is very, very deeply controlled, and you're wound really, really tight. So in her case, we see these things that start popping up after she kind of gets that freedom, if you will, of going to university, all right? And you made a very good point about mental illness, hearing after adolescence. We know that in this movie, she saw the doctor there. They ran some scans. They didn't find anything wrong with her brain or any EKGs. Didn't show any issues initially. She didn't have any drugs in her system. Very important. They wanted to do treatment on her. She did not want to do the treatment initially or she dropped off the treatment. The made-up drug, what was it called? Gabber? Gabberpentin? Gabitrol. Gabitrol. Yes. Gotta love it. She didn't take it. If she did take it, there was analysis from the doctor defending her of some of the things that it could do to you based on some of its effects. The consensus with me, I believe that the family did not want to admit that Emily Rose had mental issues. It was convenient and probably recommended by people brought into their head that, hey, your daughter, she left home. She's now, you know, in the world and she's losing it. Demon possession could be the case. And I don't think in this movie it's the case. I think it's all 100% mental illness. Ken, what are your thoughts? Go back to The Exorcist when they say, why this girl? And we came up with reasons. And we came up with his battles with the priest, the one that struggled with faith and one that he's been dealing with for a very long time. And here, the reason for her being possessed is to show the world that God exists, which is not what the devil wants. So the devil is possessing, or these demons are possessing this woman for what purpose? Just to torture her? 
it just seems like it would be more mental illness just because of the going back and forth between being well and not being well. I already had stated the names that she thrown out, which are so common names. If he would have just given them real demon names that we've like we've heard in, with Pazuza and the Exorcist, something that's a little bit more tangible, speaking in different languages. We don't really get to hear that. We do get to hear her speak with the different languages. I guess we do, but it's not really pointed out what she's speaking. It's very... Campbell Scott does that. He does do it, but it's very glossed over. Um, He talks about the two vocal cords and stuff. Right, right. (laughs) It's kind of a stretch. But based on her going back and forth and them just agreeing to all the things that she's wanting. Oh, I don't want you to feed me because the demon inside me doesn't want food. Okay, we'll listen to that demon. We won't feed you. Oh, don't do another exorcism because... I don't want you to do it. Okay, we'll listen to you and we won't do another exorcism. You're not in your right mind no matter what. If you're possessed or you're crazy, you're not in the right mind and don't have the ability to make those type of decisions for yourself. Not based on the real life events, but based on the movie itself. I think she has a mental condition. You know, we don't know how long she really was on the medication, how long it takes for the medication to work. These type of facts, if it would have been presented better in this movie, then maybe we'd say, okay. But you only had one witness on the stand that basically said that this medication made it more acceptable to demon possession. So outside of that one person, you didn't really have anything else to go by. Based on that, she's crazy. Lock her up. Wow. Um, I Crazy. Lock her up. I, um, I'll say this. Both of you brought really good points. Like Eric was talking about her Catholic family. They make them almost caricatures of an eighteen hundred late eighteen hundreds non American Catholic. The movie we believe is set in America. Now the real life story is set in Germany. But this family is unlike any Catholic family that I've ever known. And I grew up a Catholic. I was a Catholic up until well, I guess current day. As they would say the age of reason not currently practicing, but my family's deeply religious. I have multiple great aunts who were nuns. My dad's sister, my aunt, is a nun. Come from a family of deep belief, and especially in the Catholic Church. Our family's not the, was not this way. We weren't super nutty, and but they make these people out to be a caricature of like a late 1800s non-American Catholic family. It's more Protestant than they do Catholic, to be honest with you. It's weird. That's part of the movie that I don't really get and I don't necessarily like because it's like, this isn't like any family I've ever met. (laughs) In that case, I think because her grandmother was in an asylum, I believe that this is an onset of she had a schizoaffective disorder uh, whatever that one psychologist he made up that term with that included psychosis, I believe that she probably was not possessed. There's something psychological. When you start to think something yourself and you start to believe it, you start to see it in everything. And I think a lot of the characters in this movie, especially our three main, Emily Rose, Father Moore, and Laura Linney's character, they start to make these connections that are just really circumstances. Every time that you wake up in the night and you wake up and it's three o'clock, is that a demon waking you up? No. But it's... Right. It's this whole idea... I can't put my finger on the exact term, but it's like when you buy a new car 
And then that's the only car you see out on the road all the time. It's one of those type of things because your mind that is so true. What that's what how your mind works. You start to see these, and if you're starting to make these connections that aren't necessarily there, that's when like the pictures in the in the storm clouds and things like that. You start to see these things. They start to come out. I think Emily Rose was sick. I think that she was not done a service. Ken, you brought out like three or four perfect points. All of a sudden, we're going to believe her and we're not going to feed her. This movie was made in 2005. They would have put a feeding tube in her. There's things that I don't get, and that's why I have to say that she was mentally ill. I think Father Moore did the exorcism and tried to do everything he could, but ultimately everything was too far gone at that point. I think the time period here is what hurts this movie, uh, based on what you're just saying. Now, if you make this maybe in the 1950s or where medicine isn't advanced, then it has a little bit more weight. Because when this originally happened was in 1967, 68, that's more Bible because some of uh, mental illness was just starting to become a thing. As far as exactly. them trying to figure out how to deal with mental illness. They weren't yeah, getting that's... it right up to that point, and now they were starting to turn a corner here. But maybe if you push this back a little bit, then that would have helped this movie a little bit more. And would have made it a little bit more creepier, I think, if you would have pushed it back decades earlier. It starts off creepy. You come to the house and you... Oh, you it's awesome. This. Yeah, they, they make it very creepy, and they lose it. Everything they do has no payoff. One example in is when Laura Linney goes into the prison and she looks into the cell, which nobody seems to be in and it's dark, but I don't know what she's looking at. I don't know why that disturbs her. Maybe later on, have her like dreaming about it at home and maybe she saw something. Then we get to see what she saw. Maybe there's actually something there that scared her. I know exactly what you're talking about. And also too, why is she able to go to the cell? That has not been a practice as far as... Any prisoner jailed, and I have an extensive true crime (laughs) knowledge base, probably more than I probably should. Lawyers don't meet with people in their cells. There's meeting areas. Sometimes they're behind plexiglass. That's a whole thing there, too. That They're trying to set a mood for a time that doesn't exist. And Ken, you're exactly right. Make this a different time and place. It just doesn't work. And it's funny, Eric, you had brought up the ring at the beginning here when we were talking about seeing the ring. This almost feels like the house where all of this takes place should be on that island where the ring, the whole thing with the ring and the horse and everything yeah, takes yeah, place. Yeah, it does. Because it has that same sort of feel to it. A lot of these things just seem off. And it's unfortunate because there's, like I said, I think there's a good movie here. Well, I wish we could find it. I know. Me too. So, guys... We've talked about the movie here a lot, and this is a little bit different of a situation than what we had with The Exorcist. The Exorcist is based off of the book by William Peter Blatty, which was then based off of a real-life exorcism. But we don't know a whole lot about that particular circumstance other than what's written in William Peter Blatty's book. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is based off of a real-life case from Germany where two priests were charged along with the mother and father of a woman named Annalisa Mikkel, and they were German Catholics. The debate rages 
as to what exactly happened here. Any paranormal podcast worth their salt has no doubt touched on this case at some point. There's so much here. When the trial took place, there was legitimate audio from one of the actual exorcisms. And Ken was exactly right when he had mentioned earlier that there was 67 or 68 attempted exorcisms that were attempted on Annalisa Mikkel. The pictures have been, are out there for people to see. The transformation from what she was to what she ended up, as far as real life horror, is one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. Now, obviously, I know about this because this is something that's fascinated me from the moment that I saw The Exorcist. I've always been fascinated with this. I've read the Malachi Father Malachi Martin books. So I asked both Ken and Eric to listen to some of the audio that's out there on YouTube of the actual exorcism. Was Annalisa Mikkel legitimately schizophrenic or was she really possessed? I did listen to, there's about a, about an hour, hour 10 of audio out there. I listened to probably about 30, 40 minutes, give or take. It's German, obviously. You're going to be uh, having subtitles on it. It is very interesting. Kind of like Ted, I am also very fascinated in, in supernatural things. I'm very fascinated in... Everything from like UFOs to Kennedy assassination to conspiracy theories. Hell, even Bigfoot's a little intriguing. Coast to coast. Coast to coast I am with George Norrie. There's a plug. Yes, I love it. And he's got some pretty interesting people on there. Some are really, really interesting, and some are just complete whack job nutcases. The callers are whack. Yes, the call. No, and some of the guests, the callers and the guests. Oh yeah, (laughs) completely out in left field. But as it relates to this, it's very interesting listening to these tapes. It's it's fascinating that we do have these tapes. Now, the backstory on it is is somewhat related to the movie. You have a, a girl who has a very deeply religious Catholic family in Germany. She falls into this possession, if you will, 60, what, 67 times, I believe. Something like that. Something like that. And she eventually dies, and yeah. the um, pronunciation of death is malnutrition. She starved to death, dehydrated, food, nothing, right. no water. You can break this down easily into two points. Did she die of demon possession or did she die of starvation due to improper care? The tapes are interesting. If you haven't heard them, just go out there on YouTube. They're there. They're very fascinating to listen to. Whether or not you believe in this or not, it is interesting. This is something that I've been debating back and forth. I believe in demon possession. I do believe in it. I do believe that people can be possessed by demons, by Satan. I wouldn't want to be the deciding member on a jury to determine if that's fact or fiction, but I do believe that it does occur. In this case, though, I do not believe that is the case. I believe that she was severely uh, had mental issues. The family ignored it. Because of their deep religious beliefs, they did not want to admit that she had any type of mental issues, and they went right for the possession angle. Now, the priests that performed this, 
backstory on that. There has been debate that some of these priests, one of the priests out there, really didn't believe that she was possessed. He was going to try and get his name up there more in the, I don't want to say in the papers, but try to get his name more out there. Devil's advocate. I'll wrap this up. Get okay? noticed by the Vatican. Yeah, for lack of a better phrase, devil's advocate there. I use it. So if she is possessed by a demon, remember when we watched the movie The Exorcist, they had her hooked up. Remember, they had a feeding tube in her right. nose because she wasn't eating. Well, they still had to give her nutrition, tied her down to the bed and had, you know, nutrition in her nose. In this case, this, this poor uh, Annalise, she literally starved to death and they ignored it. And Ken, you made a great point. You know, someone in that condition, whether they are mentally unstable, they're having some type of a psychotic episode, or they're demon-possessed, are you really going to listen to them? You're really going to go, oh, I'll pass on the food, thanks. No, you're not going to do that. This poor little girl starved to death. She didn't get any hydration. They killed her. And this is where you get that gray, murky area. Their intention was not to kill their daughter. Their intention was to save their daughter. And that's where it gets really a gray area when it comes to a trial, which our movie could have done a much better job developing those two angles of science and faith. And in real life, unfortunately, I think the science in this case should have prevailed and she probably would have lived. That's my opinion. What do you think, Ken? I agree that I think it was mental illness coming with the expertise of dating girls who are either possessed or have mental illnesses, one of the two. I, I married really one. Sure of this. <laughs> no, my first wife, not my current wife, wife. Okay. my first wife. It's hard to go by just the audio. Uh, at first, the audio was very disturbing to me, and I was a little bit on edge. But then as it started to play out, it was kind of background noise to me, really. I didn't really care after a while. It didn't have the effect that I thought it would. Maybe it's because it's maybe too long. But didn't it feel like the priest was kind of steering the demon to say what he wanted hmm. him to yeah. hear? Yeah. It yeah. did feel a little forced <laughs> and a little steered. It's hard to judge it because we weren't there, but I think there are some similarities to the movie as to the real case what was their intention there had to be a time where they just said hey we've going a little too far here she's going to die we need to do something about this having them totally ignore it makes me think that their intentions weren't good because it didn't seem like they had the best interest of her in no. mind here the, and the have... family or the priest uh, I would say the priest. Okay, here's the reason why I won't say the family, only, but I don't know enough of the family to really base this on. But if they're extremely religious, they're putting their faith in the Catholic Church. They're putting their faith in these priests. And if these right. priests say this is the right way to do it. They're going to trust that because their that's, hands off. Their, yeah. that's their faith tells them to do that. They may be saying, we don't like this. We don't feel comfortable with this. But their faith says to trust that. I put the blame more on the priest than I would on the parents. Here's the other thing. The medication itself could have been the wrong medication for that particular person at this particular time. Medication, they were just turning the corner on how to treat mental illness. And it's very possible that the medication made it worse. It Come on, in, definitely... in The Exorcist, they were doing Ritalin. I mean, it was uh, brand I new. Think, if you know something about bipolar and other mental conditions... You need to get a right combination of the meds to actually do a good job of controlling it. If you mess up that medication, you could make it a whole lot worse. And I think that's what happened here. And instead of trying to get the medication right, they went another route. But back then in 68, 
that wasn't something that they were really used to yet is getting that medication right. They figured one medication would take care of everything or maybe one combo med maybe would do everything, but they didn't have four or five meds and, and measuring it out and getting it just right. They just didn't know back then. In my opinion, this is a perfect storm of, un- of unfortunate circumstances. We're talking about Germany in the 60s. Germans have never been religiously fanatic, but there was an undertone of religious fanaticism coming out of the failed Third Reich. They had seen murder on a scale that really is almost unprecedented. Still had the Berlin Wall going on, so you had families that were divided just across the border here, and they couldn't see each other, so there was a lot going on. Right. There was a period of not American (laughs) fanaticism with, with religion, because Americans, we do it our own way, but there was an undertone of massive movements back to the church because there was a feeling of atonement that a lot of Germans went through for having come out on the other side of World War II. You also have, like Ken, you had said, is, and I believe, Eric, you had said too, it's an unfortunate circumstance that this happened to Annalise and Mikkel in the 1960s. This is before we knew the full scope of schizoaffective disorders or bipolar disorder and things of that nature, how severe they really can be. I think this actually occurred uh, 73 to her death in 76, which I know doesn't make it any better. The 70s is not an improvement. We're right in that area right before we really start to get a lot of this. And we're talking about Germany. This does not happen in America. Being in Germany also makes a difference because America is the leading proponent of these drugs to help the people who have mental conditions. The cutting edge drugs probably wouldn't have been available. And she lived in a very rural part of Germany. So it was a perfect storm. And then you have the priest who maybe wanted to get his name known by the Vatican and may not have had the purest of intentions. After everything that I've seen and read about what happened to poor Annalisa Mikkel, I believe she was mentally ill. I believe that it's just a horrible case and a massive history of people who have been mentally ill and mistreated. And it's sad. I will say that the first time I listened to the audio, it freaked me out. I was like, yeah, this is wild. Do but we then know I, what her voice sounded like prior to the to this event? No, we don't have anything like that. And that's She's not like the Swiss Miss girl, you know. <laughs> exactly. When you brought this up, Eric, the priest who's leading the exorcism, he does kind of feel like he's leading, leading her in a particular way. Yeah. That's not what exorcism is. Because I agree with you, Eric, 100%. I believe that people can be possessed. I've done too much... And read too much about people who actually were. This doesn't feel right. There's too much ickiness running around here that it's unfortunate. This girl just needed help. Um, and unfortunately, and she, it, she starved to death. Sad. I think she and weighed it's, it's 60, so 66 pounds at her death. It was a gross amount. And it, the fact that that happened in Germany, it, considering what had happened. Doesn't help. Um, it has eerie callbacks. And they talk about the fact that she had been possessed multiple times that they actually were able to do a successful exorcism earlier on in her life but then it came back and that tells me mental illness i hate when those possessions come back you know yeah they come back repossessed the repossessed right this is a very divisive case 
there are a lot of people who truly believe that she was possessed. And they have elevated her to some sort of a, a higher plane, that she did sacrifice herself. They, people actually believe that. However, after the church did an extensive investigation of what happened, they determined that the possession was not real. Now, granted, the church at this time really didn't want that to be real either. I mean, how far you can trust the church, the Vatican, is that's up to you as a and your individual. But as far as their official investigation, they have deemed it not valid, and so she's not been raised to any sort of a any sort of status. And her stigmata, they believe, was not real as well. Okay. We've come to that point in the podcast now where we are going to talk about our thoughts about this movie. We've kind of uh, tipped our hat on to what we all think of it. Let's uh, kick it off with Ken here. I'm curious to see what your review is. So I struggle with, amazingly enough, the acting and the screenplay here. I have a big problem with Campbell Scott's Ethan Thomas, who's supposed to be this devoted Christian but it never really comes out that he's a devoted Christian. And he's supposed to be going after the priest here. One he more failure. Had, yeah. There's so many layers that could have been touched here that just weren't done. And if you would have just added a little bit more to each character, I think you have a good movie here. For the budget, I think the special effects are not too bad. I think the cinematography is actually done pretty good. I have to say that Jennifer Carpenter uh, did a really good job playing Emily Rose, but give me the backstory. I'm going to make this quick, though. This movie is a C-, and I don't know if I'll ever watch this movie ever again. Yeah, I agree with you, Ken. This movie's got a lot of holes and a lot of issues. Um, From three Academy-nominated actors, you expect a higher tier of acting in this. And yeah, we can blame the director, but at some point you also have to put a little bit of blame on the actors themselves. The courtroom scenes are just subpar. The exorcisms are not half bad. The cinematography is is quite good based on, like you said, their budget. They did a really good job with that, but there's so many holes in this movie. We need a backstory. I mean, without a backstory, this movie is, dare I say, almost unwatchable again. I I agree with you, Ken. This movie is a C-. After coming off watching movies like The Conjuring and The Exorcist, I really hoped for a lot more on this movie, and I was just disappointed. And I watched it again, and I was even more disappointed. It's not going to get better. I'll probably never watch it again. It's a C-. minus. All right, Ted, take us home. You picked this one. What do you got? I did pick this movie. This is a movie that, like I said in the midst of the podcast, I believe that there's a good movie here somewhere. I just don't know where it went. I think that the writing is fairly disjointed, especially when you go to analyze it. It does not hold up to scrutiny. I think we've proven that. And that's unfortunate because I actually do kind of like this movie still. And this movie's going to be a C for me. It's not going to be a C minus. It's going to be a, a C. And the reason that I'm going to give it a C is this. It's just good enough that I will watch it every now and then. This is not a movie that is going to intellectually take me places. On an October night before Halloween, it's an easy thing to just pop in and watch. For those reasons, that's why it's a C for me. I do really wish that there was more story here. I wish somebody like the director of The Conjuring 
would take up the story of Annalisa Mikkel. In the Conjuring universe, their latest movie, The Devil Made Me Do It, they proved that there can be a courtroom drama horror movie. I think Annalisa Mikkel's story deserves that reboot. So that's where I stand. It's kind of disappointed. I would have probably would have even gone down into the D range if it wasn't for the fact that it allowed us to have a conversation about dynamic possession. Was she possessed? Was she not to, you know, possessed? If it wasn't for that conversation that we had, and then it has really nothing to do with the movie itself. It has to do with the real life story. It might even fall even further for me, but because we had such a great discussion, that's why I, why I landed on C minus. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I found a kindred spirit in Eric. We can listen to Coast to Coast together. Oh, yes. I'll listen to it tonight before I go to bed. I was so sad the day that Art Bell passed away. I was, too. I can go into some very funny stories about Art Bell, but I'll just bore the hell out of people. So amazing. Interesting person. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening. We will be uh, moving on to our third movie in this series. And Ken, what is that movie going to be? It's called The Haunted Palace, starring Vincent Price. Okay. It's the thriller guy. Classic. He also did the speaking part in The Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. So that's got to be what he's best known for, thriller and Number of the Beast, right? Wow, that's, yeah, that's it, right? Yeah, thriller and Number of the Beast. (laughs) Very nice. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Hooked on Movies. We look forward to providing you some great podcast entertainment in the future. Thank you for listening. See you at the movies. See you next time on Hooked on Movies. Mm -hmm.